and the and it's amazing that the, in the language the word uh, humus and human and humility come from the same root and so to be humble means to be grounded For more than 40 years, William McDonough has helped define the principles of sustainability. He's an architect, product and material designer, and a global leader in sustainable development. And he's currently chair of the World Economic Forum's Meta Council on the Circular Economy. In 2002, McDonough and Michael Brongart co-authored Cradle to Cradle, Remaking the Way We Make Things. And it is a seminal text for the sustainability movement worldwide. This was recently followed by Upcycle, Beyond Sustainability, Designing for Abundance. I've known Bill for more than 10 years, and as you'll learn in the podcast, he is also focused on the role that language plays in our understanding of our world and our place in it. He has an eye for beauty, and in a segment of the population often focused on the negative consequences of human action, Bill has one of the most elegant and positive messages about what's possible and right that I've come across. It's a pleasure and an honor to share some of his thoughts with you today. All right. Well, Bill, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So, um, you know, seeing that this is a, a podcast about leadership in the 22nd century and really around this this whole notion of of leadership, which which to me, as I've observed, is really about enrolling people, leaders of companies, specifically what I do, but just in general, society, into seeing the world anew and then acting consistent with it. Um, and and uh, I just know you are arguably one of the most successful leaders of this movement, if it, we can call it that, called sustainability in the world. And you've been extremely successful at you know, mainstreaming ideas and actually getting people to see the world anew and act consistent with it. So maybe you could describe a little bit about what that means to you and how you do it. Well, the, the, the idea of leadership can be seen as both a, uh, a framework but also um, an activity. And when I look at leadership, I, I reflect upon, for fun, a letter from Emerson describing going to Europe after his wife died and returning. And he, and he went over in a sailboat and returned in a steamship. So here he is at the cusp of the first Industrial Revolution. And on his way back, even though he was doing it just a few days, he was cutting against the currents, cutting against the wind in a steamship. He remarked on his, his yearning and the absence of what he called the Aeolian kinetic. The fact that the ship that took him over had been connected to the wind and the waves and the currents, and the one coming back just plowed right through them. And so when you abstract what he's talking about for effect, you realize he's going over on a recyclable craft operated by craftspeople practicing ancient arts in the open air. And he returns in a steel rust bucket putting smoke in the air, oil on the water, operated by people you know, working in the dark, shoveling fossil fuels into the mouths of boilers. And so if you look at those two ships, you realize that in a certain way, the leader of a ship isn't necessarily a captain. It's the designer of the ship. Mm. It's the design mm. of the ship itself. 
So, so leadership, you know, actually is implies direction. It implies the activity. It implies mm-hmm. the design. Mm-hmm. So, uh, when Peter Drucker wrote a book called The Effective Executive, he he starts on the first page by saying it's the manager's job to be efficient and to do something the right way, but it's the executive's job to be effective and do the right thing. And yeah. so. For me, that's really the question. Quality first, then quantity. Because if you find yourself doing the wrong thing, and then you do it perfectly, you become perfectly wrong. So that's where I think leadership comes in. It's well, first it, question it, is, what's the right thing to do? That's fantastic. So, you know, uh, as you know, I've uh, been working a, a fair bit these days with Tompkins Conservation and my uh, friend and mentor who recently passed away, Doug Tompkins, um, he's famously known for saying, if anything's going to save the world, I'd put my money on beauty. And I know that that's also something that resonates with you. I'm just, I, I completely understand what you're saying. So, and this gets to this question about leadership, because what is it that we are living within, what is the container we're living within that we just, the, the water we're swimming in and, is, and have we chosen it? And then the question then becomes, well, what, what, are we, what is the right thing, so to speak, and what is it that we can create that is beautiful and that is uh, consistent with, you know, health and vibrancy and, and, and the language of beauty and, and positivity, which I know you're also uh, a big advocate of. Well, the, there's some obvious questions, like how could something be beautiful if it destroys children's health or the environment? Yeah. It's kind of an obvious question. But beyond that, you get into some fascinating things, I think. One of my favorite talks was Murray Gell-Mann's talk after winning the Nobel Prize in Physics for discovering the quark. And here's a theoretical physicist getting up on stage. I think he was at Stanford. And he said, we have discovered, this is equivalent to what he said, basically, was we have discovered something very interesting in theoretical physics, which is that the more and more beautiful a mathematical formula begins to appear, the more and more likely it is true. Wow, this is Aristotle meets Plato. And so the notion that we would work with number and and then we would find art and beauty is, is really quite astonishing. So as we look at a world that is so focused on statistical significance and even the notion of artificial intelligence and the idea of artifice, and then the question of what is what is beauty and artifice? And then we is it clever? Is it smart? Is it intelligent? We have smart things, smart buildings, smart city. We have, you know, artificial intelligence, which is statistical significance, which makes us nervous because how do we instruction instruct those machines with values and and the right, the wrong and, and the search for beauty. So I think there's a new sense of this too that understands that beyond statistical significance and artificial intelligence, there's something about a cultural significance, a a native intelligence that 
we might call uh, natural intelligence. So we have artificial intelligence and we have natural intelligence. And natural intelligence is what the world tells us is intelligent. It's so ancient that it becomes an opportunity to move beyond the idea of smart to the idea of wise. Mm. And once we get to wisdom, we start to see the beauty, the deep beauty of of thousands of years of culture and millennia and of culture building on, you know, millions and even billion years of of evolution. And so it's kind of funny because when we design buildings today, we we you know, here in architecture of course that form follows function, but that's Lewis Sullivan. But you know, we like to think perhaps form follows evolution. But actually today form follows parking. <laughs> uh, ooh, park, park, park. Put up a parking lot. Yes, yes. Well, you know, uh, t- talk a little bit more about this this notion of of natural intelligence. I I I go back to the, where you began, where we began the conversation, where you said Emerson, you know, sailed over on a ship that was connected to you know, the winds and the tides and, and required, you know, uh, a captaining of a different sort than a steamship, which is, you know, using uh, ancient energy to push itself across through whatever may come. We like to joke that the Industrial Revolution had a design principle, which was that if brute force isn't working, you're not using enough of it. Nice. Yes, and and that's the change. I mean, that is the change of this century. It has to be, right? Mm-hmm. So from that, so to a an advanced form of natural intelligence, is that is that correct? Or how do you? Well, see I think it? it's in, it's an integration of natural and artificial. It's both because it's it's just like the right and the wrong the good and the bad, you know, they're, they're the yin and the yang of things that you have to have for balancing. But, but if you look at those two things and then you flip to the issue of value instead of values, then you find there's another set of, um, of these uh, uh, diodes, which are, uh, you know, the less and the more, right? The greater and the lesser. Mm-hmm. So, so it's not just the good and the bad. It is also the less and the more. So the less and the more are numerical. The the good and the bad are, are moral and ethical and and aesthetic and cultural and so on. So so uh I think you need all of that. So I'm just calling for a new I'm sort of pulling this idea forward, which I call natural intelligence. We want to add it to artificial intelligence and then actually realize that the artificial intelligence is is layered on top of natural intelligence. Natural intelligence is beneath, it's our foundation. It's the world. And this is how it works. And then we add our human artifice to it. And since what we call technical nutrition or products and services, um, you know, when we called them that 20 years ago, people thought we were communists because we didn't believe in ownership. But basically, there's these are things that are the objects of human artifice. And mm-hmm. that if we design them to act the way the natural world acts, where waste is food, and we eliminate the concept of waste. And it's even exuberant. I mean, cherry blossoms everywhere in the spring, just in case one 
one of the seeds happens in Germany somewhere. What an exuberant expression of hope and beauty because we love the cherry tree and then the leaves decompose and we get back to work and one other cherry tree might show up somewhere, some bird drops the seeds. So it's a fabulously gorgeous event to get replication. Beautiful. But it's 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 naturally intelligent. And mm-hmm. and so this idea of artificial intelligence has taken us to this notion of the world of scarcity or even in trading to a world where we've got the creation of perception excuse me, the creation of the perception of scarcity where none exists. And in fact, nothing exists. When we look at the size of the markets today, financial markets, uh, the GDP is only eight percent of this of all the world of right. the financial markets, which is which means we've created a world of scarcity and trading and derivatives that aren't even based on real things. So there's actually a scarcity of of reality too. So oh my goodness, what a strange world we're in. It's it's artificial, but it's not very intelligent. Yeah. yeah. Well, it gets back to your smart and wise. There are a lot of intelligent people in, in the smart sense and who can do a lot of things, but the wisdom seems to be in short supply, uh, I'm afraid. So, well, well, tell me, you know, speaking in terms of distinctions, you've, you've recently started to outline uh, a new way to think about carbon. And in fact, I think you wrote an article in Nature that says the, uh, the new, the new language of carbon, maybe Describe a little bit what you what you mean by that. It made me sad to hear uh, a prime minister describe his country, a beautiful country, as wanting to become carbon negative in order to be a, a good country. And it was, if carbon negative is positive, then how do you explain that to children? How do children deal with adults who think double negatives are good? So being carbon negative, and if that's good, that means carbon itself must be negative. If being carbon negative is good, then carbon must be bad. Mm-hmm. And carbon can't be bad. We are carbon. Carbon is innocent. So the value of a tool is put there by the intention of the user. So if you give a child a hammer, it's a toy. If you give it to a carpenter, it's your house. If you give it to a maniac, it's a weapon. The hammer is innocent. So carbon is innocent, and we use it as a tool. We call it working carbon in some instances. But So think about the carbon first. It's just carbon, and, it, and it's involved in living forms and so on. So carbon negative, as terminology, would have to refer to human behavior. So the negative is the behavior. So the first part of the new language of carbon, we would call the carbon fugitive carbon. We call it its condition created by the humans. So that's fugitive carbon. So if it's in the atmosphere, it's carbon dioxide, for example, or, or methane that have been released beyond natural levels and so on, that could be carbon negative behavior because it's a toxin. A toxin is a material in the wrong place, wrong dose, wrong duration, and, you know, lead in the water. And you don't go around saying, I'm going to reduce my lead by 20% by 2020 for these children. And you wouldn't say that. Lead's a toxin. You go to jail for this. And you, you just say stop. So so that's the first thing. Fugitive carbon is related to the atmosphere. Or it could be fugitive carbon in the form of plastics in the oceans. They've gone fugitive. Wrong place, 
wrong dose, wrong duration, plastics in the ocean. Equal in weight to fish by 2050. Imagine. Fugitive. So fugitive carbon. Then in the middle, we have durable carbon, which is a limestone mountain sitting quietly, or plastics being recycled continuously, or a wood beam holding up our ceiling uh, for a thousand years. So durable carbon. And that would be carbon neutral behavior um, and renewable energy and so on. And then there's living carbon, which is carbon in soil, accruing carbon from the atmosphere into soil, into plants, and so on. So that would be carbon-positive behavior. So, And that's the restorative act of, of restoring the biospheres. So anyway, that's, that's the new language of carbon. Working carbon that was living would be agriculture. Working carbon that's durable would be plastic bottles or, or wood in use. And then working carbon in fugitive form would be uh, burning it for energy or something like that. And and how is this being uh, used today, or thought of again in in the in the context of people seeing things differently and then taking action accordingly? Well, I've been uh, you know delighted to see it be picked up here and there, it's sort of like cradle to cradle. You know, it was called by an English professor recently discovering the obvious, and they're using it to teach rhetoric. Because mm -hmm. the point was, you read the book, four hours later you say, well, that was obvious. You know, separate the world into biological, technical uh, metabolisms, and and the technical ones are products and services. And you have end of use instead of end of life, of course. So, oh, that's obvious. But then you realize it wasn't obvious until you read the book. And so that's rhetoric. You made an argument, and there it is. So it takes years and years before people sort of realize it's normal to think that way, which is fun to watch, especially when you create it. But the same with the language here. I've been really surprised in the last year since the article came out, um, you know, published as a commentary by Nature, because they said this can't. We're not going to peer review this because it's just it, it doesn't require that. It's just a, a new language to explore. And so it's really fun to watch the plastics industry, especially, understand that we have to design these as durable goods that get recycled across generations and cannot be burned for energy. Waste of energy is still carbon in the atmosphere. And then the, the detritus, the plastics in the ocean are a disaster. And so this idea of fugitive carbon is fundamental. It's just obvious. And it's very hard for someone to say, well, that's good, right? Whereas you can't say that living carbon essentially is a good because your children are living carbon. So... Regarding, you know, what you're quite well known for, and I know you're involved in many, many different activities surrounding, let's just call it the circular economy or cradle to cradle specifically, this this concept that you just talked about. Maybe tell us a little bit more about the genesis of the idea that led to the book that's really led to uh, a movement all over the world and, and what you're working on now. Well, um, I, I think the story really does for me start as a baby in Japan, listening to farmers collecting our sewage. We live in a traditional Japanese house. And the farmers would wake us up at night to collect the sewage, and my mother would sing songs to us to put us to sleep. And I always thought that the, the poop and the cities and the farms were one organism because this stuff came back to us as food. So waste equals food. So I remember as a baby thinking cities and farms are one thing. I still do. So then... 
yeah, as I get, get, went to college, coming from Japan, um, you know, I was very curious about Hiroshima, and I was very curious about why Einstein, if he was the smartest guy in the world, was so afraid. So, uh, so when I got to college, I asked my physics professor if he could explain to me how Hiroshima could disappear in seconds. And he said, read the special theory of relativity and solve this formula. So it was E equals MC squared. And I couldn't do it, and I was very frustrated. I'm a college freshman, and I can't do this. And um, and then I watched the fire burning, because I was at Dartmouth. We were in New Hampshire. And we have trees up there. It was 1970. So the 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 uh, log burning, and I'm looking at it going, this is entropy. This is chaos. Everything goes to chaos, never to return. It's a, it's a law of physics. And... And so I went to the library trying to look for negative entropy. What's the opposite? And um, I couldn't find it. And then when I got back, I, I realized that the log had to be negative entropy. Right. And that, then I realized that biology, I was in the wrong library. I was in the physics library looking for biology. <laughs> so um, so it was biology. We didn't have Google. It's much easier to do this kind of thing now. But anyway, I, then I realized that is biology. And so when I look at E equals MC squared, that's, that's physics, E, and in math, chemistry, if you want to pick it, which means that if C squared is as big a number as you can imagine, then if M is in any way a positive, like one hydrogen atom, then E is almost infinite, and that means, boom, there's the hydrogen bomb. So the question becomes, can we design with E, M, and the B, I guess, life? And so I thought, well, what if you think of the sun as energy, and the photons come to the Earth, and that's nuclear power, and then we have a rock in space is dead with water on it, and that's the Earth, and that's M. And then all of a sudden, you combine the photons with carbon from the atmosphere, water from the ground, and so on, and all of a sudden, we have biology. And the Earth gets covered with soil. And the soil is the source. And, the, and it's amazing that in the language, the word uh, humus and human and humility come from the same root. And so to be humble means to be grounded. Isn't that something? So I decided at that point, if I ever went into the arts or when it never became an architect, I would design buildings like trees. So because then we would collect photons and we would create negative entropy. We'd have order out of chaos. How beautiful. And it mag and it comes out as these fractal forms that are so exquisite, et cetera. So so then I decided that I did turn into an architect. And then when I was doing these kinds of buildings, then I met Michael Brunkart in nineteen one, a chemist, and all of a sudden there we were, looking at the world as two metabolisms, biological metabolism, right. technical metabolism. And then and then we built on that, and so it built into this notion of cradle-to-cradle, which first says healthy, safe things, number one, that healthy and safe for the environment and for people. Number two is circular economy and material realization. That's what we describe. And we start saying, that's when you look at products as services, that's when you look at what to redo, the reuse issues. and But you see, it's really important to understand that now the circular economy is becoming a touchstone for so many people. We're very you know, happy that we're credited with this. But the the idea, obviously, is ancient, and the, but the idea of biological, technical, and, and then designing into those industrial systems so they become regenerative mm-hmm. and restorative, that part, circular economy is not a good if it recirculates bats. So right. quality first, quantity second. Right. And then we have renewable energy, clean water, and good lives. So that's right. cradle to cradle, and circular economy is the second tier. 
Right. And and to that point that you made earlier, if you have cradle to cradle, which actually is about, if you will, the right things or the right things to do, and, and you could potentially, you know, in a sense, do the wrong things the right way very efficiently in the circular economy if you if you weren't thoughtful about it. So so what do you tell me a little bit about what you're working on in this sphere today, what you're most excited about and what you see coming in the next few years? Well, I still love designing buildings because that's where I come from professionally. So we're designing uh, a university for entrepreneurs in uh, Bogota, Colombia, for cradle-to-cradle entrepreneurs, small medium enterprises, uh, using cradle-to-cradle guidelines as they develop their companies and their products. So for the young people especially, that's exciting for them as they move out. And I think we're advising a lot of people in startups and things like that and hubs for people so they can use these principles as they engage in their business. That's exciting. Um, where we just, you know, we did finish designing NASA's space station on Earth. That was fun. Um, and that's great to work with a rocket scientist and design a building. Uh, this project we're doing in Netherlands, Park 2020, is uh, sort of circular economy uh, central, and it's designed with cradle-to-cradle materials and buildings that are designed for reuse, so they can be converted to housing in the future. They can be disassembled for parts and sold as commodities. So they're intergenerational, uh, beneficial design, and there we're building it there, and that's that's all fun. I'm working with some big companies on packaging protocols and how to design recyclable packaging for the future. It's a very hard thing to work out is this packaging issue. So we're getting in there and waiting around in it. I'll be talking at Davos about the ocean plastics and potential solutions and chemical recycling and things like that. Because we have to really get at this pretty fast. I, I, it's so late for it that it's a little frightening, but there it is. So I, uh, that one takes a lot of my time. and. Uh, Things like that. We're working. Cradle to Cradle is now, you know, an institute, and it's a, it's an independent certification. So we're nursing that out and into the world, and that's important work. Um, fashion. I'm doing a lot in fashion. I've co-founded the Fashion for Good initiative in Amsterdam, where we're giving away open source all the technique that we've used to make Cradle to Cradle fabrics and clothing. And we have mass market. Um, products and we have t-shirts and uh, we have other uh, various apparel types coming out very soon, I mean within weeks to show that we can do this kind of thing across the board and share the information so it's fashion has been fun to play with, mm-hmm. so it's like that mm-hmm. lots going on Wow so uh, back to the packaging that uh, work that you're doing and and how you talked about ocean plastics and it it reminded me that you know so much of this next let's just call it the next generation of projects and and activities are really about system modification or system evolution probably is a better way to describe it in that you you know you go back to i think a core principle that you speak about which is the design of the system itself and most of these systems weren't 
certainly weren't designed in this century. They were designed a long time ago and just evolved somewhat willy-nilly, and then we act consistent with the way it is rather than starting with, if you will, a, a fresh sheet of paper and saying, okay, given beauty, given um, you know what we want to accomplish and how to bring this into, if you will, harmony with the natural systems, you know, how would we design this? And, and so much of, of our work continues to be working at the kind of the system change or the system evolution level. I'm just interested to hear your thoughts on how um, you've done that and how you, you approach a thing like recycling or, or keeping plastics out of the oceans, which is such a massive system flaw. Um, you know, how do you see human beings in these economic systems, which have been around for a long time, operating a certain way, successful to produce the kind of results that it's producing? Uh, how do we how do we move these uh, further faster? Um, we we focus on the economics because of the, of the power of the number and the reward systems and incentives that come from that. I think a lot of people, you know, inherently have a desire to make the world better. A lot of people have a desire to make the world more fair, um, whether it's for their own purpose or for someone else's. But there's an inherent sense that things should be fair. Um, and so those things are really, really great. But, but the, the lever that affects the world the most, I think, is the economic lever. So I think our job, it's like Leibniz said, if, if it is possible, therefore it exists. You know, and that's philosophical. And so our job is to understand that because we design and we're visions. Our job is to be visionary, remembering that visions without execution are hallucination. So the execution becomes critical. And the execution is accompanied by economic vitality to encourage people at a very visceral level to uh, follow this lead. So our, we see our main job is simply to, is not simply, but make things exist so they become possible. Mm -hmm. and that's really what we've done. So when we talked about products as services 20 years ago, and washing machines as a service or lighting fixtures as a service, when you now see that these are these exist because we made them exist, and then other people can go, oh, I get it, and then they can do it. So making the examples that can be benchmarked are important. So even regulators and and the public uh, sector can can look at these benchmarks and say, look, there's a textile mill that produces clean water. And, is renewably powered and people treat it fairly and the products are at market level for mass market and there it is. You could do that too. It's so much more powerful than saying to somebody, you're bad, be less bad, or we're going to hit you with a poke you with a stick. You know? So our approach to this is you can do carrots and sticks, as they say, and our job is to create carrots big enough to use as sticks. 
<laughs> I, may I may quote you on that. That's fantastic. Yes, yes. No, that's great. That's great. So, so as you, you know, you look to the next, I mean, well, let me, let me start again. A, a lot of people in our world, um, our peers, are quite disheartened by the current state of uh, the political system in the United States um, and around the world, the current state of consciousness around these sorts of issues at a mass scale. And in fact, in certain pockets, the outright resistance to um, science and facts and, and, and the if you will, the underlying principles of, of this conversation. And I think indeed the work both you and I do and many other people do, you know, how do you, how do you see it unfolding over the next, you know, three to five years? What, what gives you hope or what gives you, uh, I know you're a very optimistic, positive person having spent a lot of time with you. Um, you know, how do you how do you get up in the morning in the face of what it seemed to be incredible odds against uh, you know the realization of many of the the things we've been talking about? I think I've I've had the fabulous benefit of people who share with me. You share your things with me, um, for example, and so that that gives me you know immense hope because people share great ideas, they share their goodwill, their resources, and so on. So, you know, when I look at a glass, I don't see it half full or half empty. I I just try and look at it clear-eyed and say it's it's always full of water and air. So the glass is full. The question is how do we share it? How do we make sure it's clean and, and delightful? So the the question is really not um, is it half full or half empty, but if we have, want more to share, then we need a bigger glass. Because if you fill a glass to the brim, it'll spill. And so it's like they it, it's a, it's a, it's referred to in all kinds of of texts, ancient texts that if you keep sharpening your knife, it'll blunt. Um, so I think I think that our job is to be optimistic because we're designers, and designers are inherently optimistic by their nature. Because our job is to make the world better, so it's it's what we do. So we have to be optimistic because we are optimistic. It's what we do. Well, good, good. Well, Bill, thank you so much for. Uh spending a little bit of time with us today and uh, and uh, really, really appreciate the work you do in the world and um, just who you are as a as a person. I know, you know, we didn't really get into, you know, the forums that you work in every day and how much schlepping you do and and whatnot. But uh, I'm glad to know you and I'm glad to know you're out there in the world uh, bringing this conversation to to the world. So thank you. Well, same to you.